And we're in. Okay, well, this is a one of our th- three things that we do, apparently. We got some shorts, we got some longs, and we got some margin haunting. And this is a Haunting the Margins episode. This is our second one. Woo! Yeah. And today, we're going to talk about Terrence McKenna. Nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> Before I go off and tell, talk about, you know, say my name and all that kind of stuff. Uh, or do we even do that? Fuck, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we have not <laughs> No, I mean, do we, did we do it for this, for this theme last time when we did Robert Anton Wilson? Whatever. Before I go into the name, or no, what am I trying to... Oh, yeah, before I go into that, like, say my name, I want to talk about the name real quick. I've noticed that people on the internet, because they just don't give a shit, you know, they just spell the name M-C-K-E-N-N-A. And I just like to say it's it's M-C-K-E-N-N-A. And this is very, very, very important. Yeah, I, I'm, that's how I've always done it. I thought us us literate folk do that. What is the uh, what's the MC mean? Uh, mischief coordinator. Does it just mean like of or something? I don't, you don't I even know. Son, son of they're, they're always son of or daughter of or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, son of, and then whatever it is that in Gaelic or something that it was originally. Anyway, I, <laughs> so yeah, we're doing haunting, haunting the, haunting the margins again. This is episode two. I am Ryan, not Terrence McKenna. Ah. I'm Harland <laughs> engine block heater Grant coming to you from negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Badly insulated Jesus. shack in Northern Minnesota. <laughs> With my boots on. <laughs> uh, nothing else. And we are the Doddlers. And this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast, Haunting the Margins, Episode 2. Robert Anton Wilson, go check that one out, all you fringy folk. Yeah. And, but don't go watch that show called Fringe. It's okay. It wasn't great. Yeah, not great. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, this one's about Terrence McKenna. And Terrence McKenna, I, 
I don't even really, I mean, I'm just going to go with it and we can correct as we go along, but he was, you know, I, I guess you could say he was like a, he had a kind of botany background and I guess you could say he's sort of like an ethnobotanist or something like that. That's a term he uses. And, uh, but it has a sort of, you know, I bet if he was a, you know, an academic in the middle of it all, he'd probably be like in an anthropology department or something, you know, um, just cause I think in general, his, his primary interest was the interaction of people and plants. And in particular, the kinds of, uh, properties that some plants possess that could, I guess you could say alter the state of your mind or whatever. But, you know, I think in general he was, I think that's the tag for him. And I, I don't, th- I'm not saying he would run away from it necessarily, but he seems to be a little bit more of a broader thinker than that. But, um, anyway, that's kind of his primary focus. And, if you watch like <laughs> uh at least, and I don't really know his background so ho- hopefully Harlan will fill fill us in but I mean if you watch videos of the guy I'm thinking yeah he didn't work at the post office you know and then do this you know like on his on the weekends like this was somehow <laughs> he managed to do this and this alone you know and uh and of course he was a kind of a 20th century guy like Robert Anton Wilson and there's I saw some video footage of the two of them in Lisbon or something. So, uh, but unfortunately, I got to, you know, come clean. This the, the extent of my exposure to Terrence McKenna comes in the form of videos, comes in the form of Harland and, and others like Harland, who I've interacted with. Um, and also, you know, some of his writing, but not nearly enough. And so I'm not really like a Terrence guy. I don't have a thesis, you know. I have I have takes, maybe, um, and who knows how well thought out they are. That's good enough. Good enough. So, but anyway, let's talk about this haunting the margins stuff first. Set set the table there before we head into Terrence. Yeah, what do you mean Terrence McKenna haunts the margins? What the hell is this haunting the margins? I, you know, you tell. You're glad you're asked. <laughs> When we were coming up with this kind of theme episode last time, we wrote a little bit about it and went through it and started developing it during the Robert Anton Wilson one. We can further develop it this time. But the idea was basically, these are kind of the pieces of it. So if we take this term, intellectuals, and apply that to those humans who primarily engage in activities involving conceptual manipulation that live in a world of ideas and words and symbols, often study sciences or humanities, so-called, people who make attempts at epistemologies and ontologies, etc. If that's kind of the game that we say intellectuals are playing, that kind of lets us develop this base class that we can use as in our spatial metaphors when we locate people as either centralists or marginalia or fringe intellectuals so you can take you can kind of examine 
various institutions developed by and participated in by these by this class and that will allow us to chunk and locate people in this abstract space some of those i think that we should include would be like academia uh, the whole edifice around education that societies develop we got media all the way from the mass media to various elite more elite media everything from publishing the written word to speaking that Terence takes part in both and probably government somehow bossing around the rest of the chimps <laughs> and uh, business turning their symbol manipulations into dollars through some sort of economic process. So if we take those four institutions and examine, list out, categorize them based around various practices, prescriptions, proscriptions, taboos, goals, what drives these institutions, we can map any given intellectual against this institutional framework and categorization scheme and see a sort of clustering around what they do as their career, how they make money, what are their habits, what do they talk about, and what these mar haunting the margins people are, according to us dawdlers, are those... <laughs> people who qualify under this first definition they're intellectuals they talk about ideas that's the game they're playing but they don't work at harvard they don't work at google you know they are kind of far out that you're going to find them instead giving workshops to 22 23 people at esalen institute or something uh, so then one of the questions that we're interested in is, what is it that makes these intellectuals marginal? What pushes them out to the fringes? And also, and perhaps more importantly, if one's interested in ideas, what are those folks out there on the edge of the galaxy that don't fit in one of the spiral arms so well? What are they saying? So that's kind of the background underlying foundation of what this Haunting the Margins project is about. Did I express that well enough? Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> um, last time we were kind of, and this time to a degree as well, although just maybe a slightly bit more structure to it, we'll see. Uh, but last time we were definitely feeling our way through trying to figure out, well, you know, what are the character, you know, characters that or characterizations, categories that would fit, you know, sort of the constellation of all these characters come together and create a margin hunter, such as Robert Anton Wilson, or as we would say uh, tonight, Terrence McKenna. And we came up with some basic categories. There may be more as we go along, um, and, you know, not every single one will be filled to the brim by these individuals. But I think that it's a good place to kind of explore briefly um, or for a while, I don't know, <laughs> but before we get into the ideas of these people. Because in some ways, it, 
this theme is more about the individual uh, in a way because of their where they sit, their status in the spatial metaphor, if you will, their location. Uh, they're out there at the margins, and we want to know why. We're not as focused then on ideas. So, I mean, we are focused, but not as. So we thought of humor, taboo, uh, kind of a sort of a populism, um, the sort of a radicalism stuff. We kind of talked a little bit about the career, you know, the sort of what they did for a living and, you know, what what it was they were doing in general um, throughout their life. So, or at least their intellectual life. Um, so I guess we can say, if you want, we could start with an easy one, and that would be humor. I just quickly will say that I think Terrence McKenna has a really good sense of humor. And it, it's very self-deprecating and um in general to me just uh, listening to him talk and you know uh you know cut himself down in a very funny kind of way it just makes you like the guy even more so he also had this he has a really high likability quotient or whatever uh to me um i don't have any particular instances except for i was listening at one point to a to a talk he was giving about, and it was just a specific instance. And he, he did some kind of, he did some math uh, in particular for one of his books. And I can't remember the name of it, of course, but whatever. Um, it has to do with his wave theory thing that we'll probably get to in a little bit. Yeah, but that would probably be the invisible landscape. There you go. The invisible landscape. So he, um, in, in this book has some, math that he's done and and one of these some kind of mathematician at oxford or cambridge or something like that uh wanted to meet with him and he met with him and he apparently the guy was like 19 years old or whatever and the guy found a mistake in the math and then produced a paper out of that and kind of just sort of you know just shot terence mckennedy to the wind and in a very similar way in terms of the feelings that Terrence McKenna had about this event in his life, uh, sort of the way that Darwin, it seems like, and as far as I've read and it described, and because Darwin's so well written about, it's hard not to have many examples about the guy. Same with Einstein. Anyway, Darwin had this big, like, you know, collapse, you know, crisis. When he received a letter from Alfred Russell Wallace detailing natural selection <laughs> after Darwin had been spending 20 years trying to work on the problem. Anyway, and Darwin was like, oh, you know, the letter was intended to be sent over to Charles Lyell, and, and somehow Darwin had a more of a rapport with Wallace than Wallace had with Lyell. So Lyell's like, hey, can you send this over to, you know, to Lyell so that I can, you know, see if I have anything here. And of course, Darwin had been working on it the whole time. And so he just felt like his whole world collapsed and all of his originality and everything he had was just gone. Now, in that case, somebody else was more or less confirming with Darwin what he was working on. Whereas in the case of Terence McKenna, he had a crisis where this guy uh, came about, you know, coming up with some mistake in his math. And he thought, oh, crap, I'm done for. And the whole idea is nonsense. So there's this incredible amount of doubt and 
it just a lot of human qualities in this story. But he gets to this point in the story where he starts to like, without realizing it, like telling the guy how to like write the paper and like you know talking about like here I'll guide the knife as you you know destroy me or whatever they he said it was called like an anatomy for something or other it was the title of the paper but just the way he this is a super dark moment and it's a perfect time for humor and he like nailed it mm. uh and so i don't know it just seemed to me like he really you know here here these people are on the fringe but they have the ability to laugh about it you know and I, maybe that's because they've always sort of been on the fringe or whatever but um but i just love that little story that he tells um I've never heard that little one. That's fun. Yeah. So it was this crisis in wave theory. It turns out um, when you, another mathematician looked at it and he was like, oh, well, you know, yeah, there was a mistake in the math, but when you correct for it, it's a small difference between what you had before and what you get instead. And so he was like, oh, so everything still checks out. And the guy's like, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, so it was. Yeah, because as far as I know, he was buying into that idea quite heavily until the end, so. I don't think he was corrected and abandoned it, but he might have shifted the eschaton. He there might have go. changed the end date. Yeah. So anyway, there's some humor for you. But he always had good humor in his talks, at least. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. I think Wilson made a much bigger deal out of humor. I think that, I mean, he even, they'd call him a stand-up philosopher or whatever at a time, and he was quite consciously making jokes often. I see humor as less important in McKenna, but that he is kind of a twinkly-eyed type that's always ready to have a wry smile or something. That it's not... He's not a jokester, but he has a sense of humor. For sure. And it, I get maybe the other part of this that could... Maybe it's it's mutating. But... Humor and also sort of taking oneself seriously, I think, might be also another area. Because people who take themselves seriously, you know, probably don't like those who don't take themselves too seriously. And because then it sort of, you know, if you're a truth seeker and you're, you know, doing God's work or whatever, basically. And if you're just somebody with who's got a creative mind and is having fun and is interested and and coming up with things and, and finds it worth more talking about it than talking about the weather, then, you know, that's going to kind of challenge the serious people in a way, I think, because they're like, well, this yeah, is I like serious. That. You know? Yeah. That's a nice addition or refinement or whatever. And that would fit both of these folks that we have so far. Cool. So... Anything else? You, I mean, you pretty much said your piece about humor. Yeah. I just, yeah. Anyway, so moving on. Uh, in no particular order, except for the order in which I'm looking at it. <laughs> this little list of ours. Um, taboo. Taboos. This one, I think Terrence McKenna shines on. <laughs> yeah, this is, he's, he's to the brim on this one. <laughs> Everything from, obviously, the emphasis on psychedelic drugs, I mean, eliminating the term drugs as a category, emphasizing psychedelic plants. I think he was in favor of decriminalizing all chemicals of all kinds. Uh, he preferred the 
biological ones that have a history of human usage and coevolution over the laboratory constructions, but I think he was in favor of legalizing all so that's a big one. Uh he was a feminist in the sense of sort of matriarchal societies, the whole archaic revival concept and that he I think would prefer that the world were run by ladies and that I think is taboo in the culture that I seem to live in. Oh yeah. I mean especially mid 20th century uh intellectual culture too. Talk and obviously sexual libertinism um <laughs> Yeah. Experimentation. I mean, he was kind of coming up from and heavily influenced by and stuck with a sort of radical empiricist style so that he, you know, he had this skeptical scientific outlook but engaged that module on all sorts of taboo topics. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, he, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I had a thought and then I lost it. But I think I was going to say something along the lines of the other kind of taboo-y thing that he has is, I wouldn't say he was effeminate, but I would say that he seems, to an extent, he's not the... Um, jovial captain of his industry like maybe John Searle or uh you know um yeah any any of these other people like we've talked about a Hillary Putnam none of this sort of like leaning back and well let me tell you you know that kind of thing like it, he seems more like he's leaning in he's paying attention he's self-deprecating he's concerned that people are able to understand what he has to say and so he's trying to be clear and and in so doing he's soft in the way he speaks he's a very distinctive way of talking insert him talking about something here culture uh, the whole thing is that culture and language tend to become traps and yet they can be the platforms for enormous freedom if you understand what it's all about and what it's all about is you you are the center of the mandala you are not marginalized in any way and the message that the culture gives us is that we are marginal it doesn't matter whether you, if you've got a hundred million dollars, Fortune magazine will inform you that so do 10,000 other people on the North American continent. There's nothing special about you. It's, and so we are constantly, this is part of the democratic legacy. We are constantly told you're not special. Special isn't special. Anybody could do it. What the psychedelic, and so then when you look for guidance, direction, mentorship, we always look toward institutions. Well, I'll go to the university, or I'll go to the army, or I'll do something. Somebody will tell me, will give me a larger purpose. But it's really yourself 
that is uh, the final arbiter. And if you keep yourself as the final arbiter, you will be less susceptible to infection by cultural illusion. Now, the problem with this is that it makes you feel bad to not be infected by cultural illusion because it's called alienation. You know, but this is, I, I can't solve all problems. The reason we feel alienated is because the society is infantile, trivial, and stupid. So uh, the cost of sanity in this society is a certain level of alienation. I grapple with this because I'm a parent. And I think anybody who has children, you come to this realization, you know, what'll it be? Alienated, cynical, intellectual, or slack-jawed, half-wit consumer of the horseshit being handed down from on high. There is not much choice in there, you see, and, and we all want our children to be well-adjusted. It's unfortunately, there's nothing to be well-adjusted to. <laughs> and we're back. Um, and, you know, so he has this quality that is not the... Uh, well, I just shot a 10-point buck and I ate its face off with my bare teeth or what, you know, like, because I'm a man. You know, there's none of that machismo or anything going on or this sort of, like, uh, you know, high-class, high-brow, nothing like that. He looked he looked fine, but he also looked a little disheveled, you know, like, because clearly so he's, status he's neither and stuff. Noam Chomsky nor Ted Nugent. Yeah, basically. Yeah, he's he's, yeah, and I, he would never laugh at anybody, you know, like <laughs> like nothing like that. Like he, there was so so there was no chauvinistic qualities about him. So yeah, he was a bonobo, not a common chimp. Of if you were to break it down that way. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like that. He's a bonobo. Mm-hmm. So that that was my thinking on the on the last part. I mean, that was my last thought on taboos with him. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of similar topics to the radicalism. He, uh, similarly, that's what he's radical on, or it would be considered radical by the intellectual institutions of Western World 2019 or 1975, that uh, let's all take heroic doses of plant hallucinogens <laughs> Lay down in silent darkness and see what the fuck we can see. That's considered pretty radical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and of course, there was an element of conspiracy as well, to an extent, um, in that I think it's either he or his brother Dennis, or both, discuss at different times in various uh, formats, video or whatever, um, how... There was kind of an open dialogue with these kinds of, you know, hallucinogens or drugs or whatever you want to call them, um, mind-altering substances, um, at one point, and the government was somewhat facilitating that work in a more or less publicy kind of way, and then some event took place, and maybe you can fill me in if you know this or not, but some type of event took place probably, you know, just 
you know, the hip, you know, hippie movement in the, you know, sixties and, you know, the, you know, the, just in general, the civil unrest and the amount of drug taking happening then. And all of a sudden maybe some of these government bodies didn't want to be associated with, with it anymore. And so they kind of shut down a lot of the work. They were going to like have a number of like conferences and things like that, that where people would get together and try and understand what these things were about. Cause it's kind of a new frontier for Western civilization, at least in the modern way. But I guess apparently that got all like turned away because it became taboo based on the context of a clash of generations or what have you between the, you know, World War Two and and an earlier generation and then the boomers and their the civil unrest that was being, you know, created there and that you know, in academia as well. So anyway, I think to some extent that's also sort of the conspiracy radicalism type stuff. Uh, gets tacked onto these guys to an extent. Don't sometimes they blame the CIA or something for once they discovered how effective LSD was as a consciousness-altering agent and a belief, how susceptible one came, one became when under its spell to various mind brainwashing that they wanted to have a monopoly on it and therefore made it illegal i think that's some of the conspiracy talk. yeah that's also yeah that makes sense if i mean i've never heard of it not that i yeah anyway it makes sense that they would say something along maybe the, those lines um another was, way that yeah. i think oh no go ahead. go ahead you had more to say on that because i was gonna i was just gonna to say the they were certainly thing. they were certainly caught up in it but anyway what's another thing I think that one could call it radical that McKenna was a traveler and wanted to go run these experiments firsthand in the places that they occur. He makes all these pilgrimages to the Amazon or to India to check out what people have got going. He wants to get it firsthand. Let me find the shaman who is the most authentic left in the 70s or 80s and get their recipe for ayahuasca or whatever. And so I think that's a bit radical, especially if you're comparing it to other intellectuals or academics. They might not want to go get their hands dirty or risk their digestive system by living with the Witoto for a (laughs) month. For sure. And they probably might be concerned about uh, I don't know if we want to jump to this one now, but they might be concerned about their careers, you know, and how will they look at me back? You know, like I'll only do that when I get tenure or whatever, or when I become a somewhat untouchable in whatever the institution is that I've put in my time, then I'll go to, you know, ayahuasca town or whatever. So I kind of wonder about that. Uh, did you want to stay on radicalism or do you want to go to careers? <laughs> yeah, we'll keep keep cutting through the brush here. Okay, so... Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, as far as career is concerned, I don't really know. I mean, obviously, I, I again, I, I only know Terrence McKenna from, you know... 
inside the walls of wherever he is. So that could be videotape of uh, lectures he's given or just interviews or whatever, you know, and so that's up on YouTube, or et cetera. And then, of course, the books, and that's inside the walls of his mind. And so I'm always, you know, with Terrence, I'm, I've only ever really been on the inside. There's no place where he goes and shuts the door that I am aware of uh, that isn't his home that he does, that he makes a living, you know? So, like I said, I don't, you know, was he working at the post office in Florida or whatever? I don't know if he if he came from money or if he just was one of those people who just takes risks and took the risk and it, it paid off as well as it could or whatever. And he wasn't wealthy, but he wasn't, you know, poor and he just managed himself well enough to get by. I, I don't know what his thing is in terms of that, but he is, doesn't seem to be part of any major institution. Uh, Maybe small ones. I I don't know. No, what as far know? as I understand, he was mostly making his living. His career was as an itinerant lecturer and writer. That would just get you know kind of a gig economy type thing. Like um, Wilson, yeah. Let's let I'll attempt to run through what I think I recall about his life story. Uh, anybody who was his. <laughs> friend or kid or whatever, write in and correct us. I don't think he came from money. As I understand it, he was just born to some randos in somewhere in Colorado. And while growing up in a traditional American middle-class life in the 50s or 40s or whenever it was, 40s, right. 50s, 60s, I think, he was just influenced by books in the first place. From people like Aldous Huxley to become interested mm -hmm. in these far out ideas and then went to Berkeley for some sort of botany and or anthropology or whatever the degree was. But then I don't think he even finished that or whatever before he ended up taking his hippie pilgrimage to India and bumming around in the ashrams and meeting all the cuz they you know that's what at the time was in the air and we've got Alan Watts and all these guys telling oh the east has all the wisdom and McKenna's interested in that so he starts there hmm. and experiences what this far east has to offer and does the yoga does the meditation lives with these folks and he wasn't getting what he wanted he thought, okay, if, ultimately, if this is a path to the wisdom I seek, it takes too much dedication and too long, and I'm going to keep looking. I think there's probably a better way. And I, at that, One of the ways that he made his living at that time, he writes in um, his sort of pseudo-autobiographical book, True Hallucinations, which is where most of this is coming from. Uh-huh. As a butterfly collector, he was, he, and when he went to the Amazon, too, he brought, he always says that I brought my trusty butterfly net, and I don't know how you make <laughs> money as a butterfly entomologist, but I guess he was doing that. Which is, you know, another just cute and interesting thing about the guy. Well, that's sort of, that's actually very classical. 
in a way. And that kind of also puts him in good company, I think, with a lot of, you know, let's just say natural historians, you know, naturalists, um, because that's kind of what they did back in the day in the 1800s, 1700s, etc., when, you know, European conquest of the world was happening, um, you know, following all the Renaissance, etc., you know, that's kind of interesting because that's sort of what people used to do was they would have some kind of wealthy patron, whether it be kind of a museum or whether they were aboard some vessel that was going to be in exotic places where you could collect specimens and then they could be bought by a museum when you got back to the big city or whatever. And so that's sort of a very... I don't know. It's a very Russell, you know, Alfred Russell Wallace of him to go and collect exotic yeah. butterflies or even just specific, uh, you know, uh, instances or tokens, if you will, of a particular kind of butterfly. It might have something unique about its wings. It would also be very like you'd have to. It's a delicate organism in terms of preserving because you can kind of just go up to the wings, right, and just sort of rub it off. You know, even once you've like killed it or put it in gas or whatever it's supposed to happen, um, you know, so you have to be really delicate with that and then be able to preserve that. And if you're in India and you're going to take your shit back to fucking America, that's kind of a, you know, for someone like me, I'd be like, uh, you know, I'd have a little anxiety over that because I'd worry that everything would be destroyed by the time you get back. And I'm sure history is littered with those types of situations you know where people did get back to wherever they were going and all that hard work was lost because of something you know whatever spilled ink or something anyway so it's very mm-hmm. classical of him to collect butterflies it's like beetle nice. collecting or whatever. yeah anyway out of fashion yeah at this point i'm sure <laughs> I think he ended up back at Berkeley again, got together with his brother and a couple of friends who felt like going on an adventure, and they decided, as their next wisdom pursuit, to go after this South American shamanism stuff. And they had read about a very particular substance, plant-based chemical down there, that I think was called... Ukuhe or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce these things. And it was a mystery and nobody really knew what it was in North America Mm. at the time. And they wanted to go find it. So we want to dive down. We want to go where this one guy that wrote this one book said we could find it and try to talk our way into getting some from somebody down there. (laughs) So the four of them load up and they get on their planes and then their boats and then they're walking and then they're whatnot to go deep into the Amazon rainforest looking for this particular substance. Cool. But on their way, they became (laughs) distracted by a different substance that then I think lasted till the end of McKenna's life that they, while they were still on the trek, but staying at one of these like missions down there, deep in the woods, they were like, well, you know, there's all these mushrooms growing on all these cow pies oh. down here. We better see what those are all about. We hear good things about the mushrooms, too. 
So while they were on the trail of this mystery psychedelic, they found these psilocybin mushrooms and found that they were pretty interesting too. And then (laughs) they, you know, had all these intense experiences. And then that's what this book was about. They ended up calling it The Experiment at La Carrera, where they just got deeper and deeper into these particular mushrooms and had some weird shit go down that occupied the McKenna brothers for quite a while. (laughs) Right. For sure. Uh, But, you know, then after that, they came back and then he managed to write some things that had interest about these mushrooms. They wrote a grower's guide under pseudonyms. The McKenna brothers wrote a guide about growing mushrooms Later, when Terrence had a farm on Hawaii, on one of the islands, he started this nonprofit organization called Botanical Dimensions, and they were interested in growing some of these South American mushrooms, in like cultivating them, and preserving various of these uh, traditional shamanic plants. So that was part of his career is, you know, literally gardening things, growing things. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think most of it was just his extensive lecturing, which many, many of which have been preserved. And which you can right. find yeah. on YouTube and everywhere else. There's more hours of Terrence McKenna speaking than anyone you can get your fill. Yeah, it's true. And for my money, it I'd rather true. listen to him speak than read his writing. I don't think he was a great writer. I think he was pretty basic as a writer, but very engaging, entertaining, and virtuosic as a speaker. Yeah. He was a very good speaker, orator, or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay, so he, who knows how he actually made the money. Maybe he got out loans and somehow was able to sell some of the things that he grew and did, you know, whatever. I know he was married. I don't know if his wife was a breadwinner or whatever, Um, you know. But somehow, oh, the lecturing, I don't know how much he would have charged for lectures. He doesn't strike me as somebody who would have charged a lot or something. You know what I mean? Like, he almost strikes me as the kind of individual who would have turned down an offer he thought was too much. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, oh, no, no. Well, half of that, you know. Or I don't know. Maybe he, he made, made all his money, money dealing drugs. drugs. I don't know. <sighs> oh, fuck. You got me there. I don't know why that one was, like, completely... He had access. I think there was a rumor going around at some point that he was wanted by the FBI for importing of hashish or something like that. I don't know. But I, unlike Leary, I don't know of him ever being arrested for anything. Well, that's the thing of it, right? I guess he never really, he never got into trouble. But, you know, he's kind of one of these margin haunters who could talk his way out of a ticket, I feel like, you know? <laughs> Perhaps. I don't Depending know about on, some of the other ones. But I don't know might. how many cops would be impressed with this bearded, bespectacled motherfucker who knew more words than they do. Yeah, but he's so gentle. And oh, What's the problem today, officer? You know, oh, anyway. Okay, so 
you feeling good on the career? It's it's a mystery. He, he may have sold drugs for a living. I don't know. <laughs> I love the, I've never heard anyone mention that because only we would bring it up. Like, what do he do for a living? Because how much does he really get in the lecture circuit? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, no one's ever been like, yeah, he sold drugs, dude. Anyway. Um, okay, so I, I, I'm... Fine with what we've said about the career. What are you? Are you? Oh, I'm so. Is fine. there anything else? So fine. You said populism. Is there something to that that you? Well, that draw, came jogs up your memory under Wilson, and I think that one fits much better with Bob than Terrence. I don't feel that Terrence McKenna was much of a populist. One no. of his intellectual heroes was Marshall McLuhan, and, and McKenna said of McLuhan that his books are very dense, and you have to, he demands a lot of his reader. In order to fully appreciate it, you have to have so much background knowledge. I feel that way somewhat about McKenna. Uh-huh. I don't think he really dumbed things down. I think the level that he spoke and wrote on was typically relatively high, and that most people, even that bothered to come to his lectures, Probably 75% of it just flew over their head. And they just liked hearing the stories about the trips. Yeah, the drugs. Totally. (laughs) But I'm totally Um, convinced that Terrence McKenna was extremely erudite and well-read and knowledgeable. Yeah. And I I feel he spoke as such and that most people simply wouldn't follow it. Uh, likely. Um, so another then, cause I got nothing else to say about populism. Okay. Another then, uh, the last one is marginal as determined by whom? So like critics, experts, just general pitchfork waving folk, you know, like, uh, who, who determines that? that uh, McKenna is a marginal. Uh, my guess is that just, you know, legal stuff maybe, because now that we're talking about him selling drugs. <laughs> Which is totally random him. speculation, by the way, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I, I'm just throwing I can't something out go. there. I can't let it go. Anyway. Well, so uh, another story that I heard somewhere in one of the books or talks was that at some point, after coming up with this time wave theory that he liked so much, he pursued a particular scientist that he liked and respected that was academic and got a meeting with them. He went to their office and and laid the whole thing out, and apparently the guy was a huge dick about it. I was just like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and you are dumb, and go away. And so... If the question is, who determines the marginalization? I think that the answer to that is always going to be complicated and have a little bit of everything. But at least in McKenna's case, there was an attempt made for legitimacy. I think that he valued that and ideally would have been academically respectable. He, I think he gave it a shot and when he was constructing his ideas and presenting them, I think he was attempting to create something that people, that he wanted 
centralist intellectuals to respect. But they yeah. didn't. <laughs> no. And I think we said something quite similar about Robert Anton Wilson, did we not? Um, did, I don't remember. S- I, I don't. I feel like I would we say said something. Mechanic cared more about that and tried more than Wilson, probably. Maybe it was something to the effect of they didn't see themselves as marginal. That's, I think, what it really was. And I wonder if Terrence, he just didn't see himself as marginal either. It's like, I'm doing, doing experiments and I'm talking about these things. I'm reading these people's, you know, these Harvard professors' articles. And you know what I mean? Like, I think that's what it is. I would venture a guess that he did see himself as not marginal. Hmm. I would figure he knew very well how marginalized he was and would describe himself that way, but wished it were otherwise. Oh. But he didn't get any, like, he didn't relish in it, you know? He wasn't like, ha-ha. Right, I don't think he relished in it, no. Hmm. But I, I mean, I'm just okay, well, that's, uh, again speculating. I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, <laughs> oodles and oodles of speculation tonight. Okay, well, folks, that about covers so far what we have in terms of categories and sort of where we're trying to fit the square peg in a round hole with respect to these ta- uh, these these categories and. Uh, and Terrence McKenna specifically. So maybe we want to start to uh, talk about some of this man's ideas. Maybe. Oh, let me throw <laughs> one more thing on the list that just came to me that we could Good. add to the list and talk about it in the future. What right. about associates or associations? Who do you choose to give You know your co-colloquium with who do you want to sit on stage with one of the first things i ever ran into from terence mckenna was these things that he called that were labeled the trialogues between terence mckenna rupert sheldrake another fringy intellectual a little closer to the center i think and this mathematician who did a lot of chaos theory named ralph abraham and i found those very interesting and stimulating personally, but the fact that you are, you know, let's say someone else is already established as a margin haunter, and then you are excited to sit on stage with them and share a bill. Maybe that's another aspect of these margin haunters, that they kind of flock together. Yeah, birds of a feather. (laughs) Okay. And so that, you know, if you've got a... McKenna, Abraham, and Sheldrake on the program. That's just a more reinforcement of, oh, I'm kind of fringy. Are you too? Yeah. Oh, I am. Yeah. I don't know. They just won't listen. Yeah. And I already talked about that Lisbon video where somebody, maybe it was that Abrams guy or whatever, uh, Robert Anton Wilson and Terrence McKenna were, in, you know, just on a little trip together. <laughs> going around seeing the sights. One thing I will say is interesting about that little video that I've mentioned twice now already is when you watch the Terrence McKenna and Robert Anson Wilson, Wilson was not 
um, he didn't seem nearly as outgoing as McKenna was. McKenna is like, wherever the camera is, he, he would like just sort of like nudge into frame, and, you know, or if he had an opportunity to point something out and give like the, the broad, like historical background, kind of like, you know, Rick Steves or something, you know, he would, you know, he'd be like, and this is this site and it will, it did this and this is the significance and all that. And usually it looked like from that video, the one sample that I have, Wilson was not like doing anything. He was just sort of hands in his pockets, camera around his neck, just sort of, you know, not super engaging with the camera and you know what I mean? Just sort of <clears throat> off to the side. So that's, can't say that they're outgoing necessarily. That that won't be a category I don't think we can use. Because just looking at that sample, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tara, they're just different people. You know, they have different feelings of outgoingness or whatever. Uh, anyway, I'm done. Not yet you're not. Hasn't even been an hour. <laughs> I don't know. So as the, our segue between... What makes someone marginal and what is an idea held by Terrence McKenna? This is one where it's somewhat shared with Wilson, though Wilson emphasized it far more and McKenna kind of vacillated back and forth. In certain talks, he would say it this way, and in other talks, he would be very dogmatic. But one can find McKenna being a radical skeptic. And, you know, I pick up on this one because this is an epistemological position that I also hold and identify with. But you can find McKenna saying, well, I don't believe anything or I strive not to believe anything. The way he phrases it is, if you believe something, then you logically preclude yourself from believing the opposite. And so, therefore, believing anything limits your options and I'm against that as a hippie radical i want every uh, everything should be available to me and holding of beliefs makes certain things unavailable to me so i don't like to do it and that was wilson's primary motif his model agnosticism and attempting not yep. to have any beliefs whatsoever and definitely not to claim to know anything and that's something that i often argue for and feel kind of marginalized by claiming that's not a popular position in epistemology 2019. So, I don't know, what do you think? Is that criterial for fringiness, or is it just a coincidence that so far our marginal people think that way? I I guess you could maybe say, you know, that there is a a lack of hardening of the ideological arteries or whatever um, regarding, you know, said particular topic, you know, or whatever. Um, These are people that do that difficult uh, tightrope walk across the fence, not falling on either side, you know, uh, too often anyway. And if they do fall, it's probably not for very long. Um, And... I wonder also if it's possible that this helps explain why he kind of had an aversion, it seems anyway from the things that I've read and seeing him talk about it, he seems to have a bit of an aversion to what was largely cropping up around him 
likely and probably in his audience were the sort of the sort of new age woo kind of stuff. Like he seemed to be a, have an aversion to that. He didn't seem to embrace it openly, maybe because in part it did go down the rabbit hole a little too far and without any in, intention of coming back out of it or, you know, that it was all just going to be floaty and, you know, you know, wispy spiritual and all that kind of stuff. And he seems to be very, his project, life project, is to try and be as clear as possible about the things he's thinking and the experiments he's conducting and to try and communicate that as effectively because, you know, he thinks that some of these things are worth uh, exploring in depth and he just happens to be the guy who do, to do it or whatever. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I that, like that. That's something I was wondering. <clears throat> I like that topic. And that came up in Wilson, too. And this is another one, and it interests me. Because, and it a bit harkens back to the career thing. How do you get your money or whatever? How do you exist in the society that we have built when you don't have a home base? Right. It's obviously not in religion. It's not in business. It's not in government. It's not in academia. What is left? And they end up, in the new age, often, on this fringe, you know, where, where who's going to bother to listen to my drug-addled rantings? <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be a bunch of lapis lazuli-wearing, New Mexico-living, Portland-Oregon-living nuts. And <gasps> the way Wilson seemed to relate to that crowd was with jokes and relatively gentle satire. But I think that McKenna was actually quite vocally aggressive toward that crowd. Yeah. The New Agers and the those who were willing to believe anything or buy into any program. I think he was pretty much like, no, this is no, that's not stop that. That's not okay. Yeah. That's not what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was that was. I'm glad I brought it up because I kind of it helps flesh it out a little more. Yep. Um. Okay, so are we are we uh are we at the the knife's edge? We're gonna segue into the sky. Yeah. You. I mean, you have something. You know where you want to go. I don't have an outline of his ideas and you know when they first came up and so we've mentioned you know time wave theory and. And um, we've mentioned psilocybin mushrooms without mentioning other things that they are involved in with respect to his ideas. But right now, if I wouldn't know where to begin, like what's a good idea to begin with regarding Terrence McKenna, would you say? Well, let's begin with the most complicated. (laughs) All right. There the impression I get, they are all tied together. And so that when we start, we'll start chronologically in his life story, and then they'll build from there. So we're down at the mission at La Carrera in 1971 mm-hmm. on this first, they're all in their early 20s, and the McKenna brothers and their buddies are in South America They've made their way down there. They're living in huts with hardly anything, and they're picking mushrooms off cow pies all day and getting high. It's actually Dennis McKenna 
who ends up being the phenomenological catalyst for this because of the way that he is relating to his mushroom trips and describing them to the others. But he becomes convinced through this, you know, and this is another motif that you'll see throughout Terence's career. He's not a dabbler. He doesn't want you to take a little bit of ecstasy and go to the club and rave all night and have he's not a hedonist he's saying no 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 you need to take at what he calls a heroic dose an extreme amount of something that of course is safe but it's got to be enough to give you these intense hopefully visual hallucinatory states and that's what these guys were experiencing as kids down in the jungle eating a whole bunch of mushrooms. So Dennis becomes convinced while taking them that he can... There's a sound in his head that I think they liken to the hum of a cloud of nearby insects or something like that. And then he starts making a noise with his his own voice that the others find kind of haunting and interesting and unusual for a human being to make. But that Dennis McKenna is saying that through, when I made that noise, it was psychokinetic or something. It was having physical effects in my environment and it was doing things. And then they start from that to develop this complex and sophisticated, at least to this listener, I don't know enough to point out where it's flawed, if it is, about how there can be sonic effects on chemical bonds and that perhaps if one makes the right noise or series of noises with the right chemical soup in one's brain that somehow that can enhance the way that the psychoactive chemicals in the ingested drug interface with the neurotransmitters or with... They even talked about DNA itself, that somehow you could make this noise and then the drug would bind with the DNA and you'd be high all the time or something like Whatever. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> okay. That seems dubious, but to me... I mean, the whole... well. It's all dubious to me. But anyway, that there was something about this noise or whatever. And this led eventually to the Terrence McKenna motif that I think came from one of the early intellectual influences that he read as a young kid still in Colorado and a virgin to all this hippie bullshit of the... um, He was very interested in the Logos that he attributes to this antiquated individual named Philo Judaeus and ultimately back to Plato. So what the Logos is supposed to be is the language of the Platonic forms, basically. So a Platonic form idea is like you've got all your tables and chairs and cups and the shit that you deal with and all of those you know by resemblance because they partake 
in some sort of analogical relationship to the perfect, flawless cup that exists somewhere in a separate metaphysical realm that is the form of cup. The Logos is the language of that. Right, well, yeah, so you're in Plato's cave, and the shadows on the wall are the things you experience, but the object that is held up that casts the shadow is the form, whatever. So the Logos is the linguistic component of the formal realm. That would be the set of symbols that correspond to the Platonic forms, rather than the English letters C-U-P referring to this individual cup in front of me here, you know. Mm-hmm. So, cup is to Platonic cup as the word C-U-P is to the Logos symbol that refers to the Platonic cup. So, Philo Judeus and Terence McKenna are interested in constructing what they call a more perfect Logos. They want to bring human language closer to this Logos in the way that one might want to as an architect or something, or as an engineer, construct the perfect park bench, whatever. So through these mushroom experiences and these uh, visual hallucinations, McKenna starts to think about, oh, well, a more perfect logos would not be auditory, because that has too many ambiguities. It would be a a language apprehended visually you would take very literally the idiom, do you see what I mean? McKenna's saying, yeah, that's what it would be. That's what the Logos would be. You would see what I mean instead of hearing it and reconstructing in your own mind some analogy. You would just see it. It would be an object. And so... McKenna gets high on these mushrooms and he sees these things that he calls the self-transforming machine elves that make these, what I think he called them something like self-dribbling jeweled basketballs or whatever. But those basketballs, those jeweled basketballs, are these objects of the visualized logos. So McKenna is all about how taking these plant-based hallucinogens is quite literally communicating with, capital O, the other. He thinks there's some that there's no way this stuff is somehow a construct of my brain. That the things I'm experiencing on my mushroom trips must be communications from somewhere else. Whether it's the Platonic realm of the Logos, or whether it's an interstellar transport scenario, and then he talks about the whole... what's the... panspermia, and how mushroom spores can transport across the vacuum of space and deal with radiation and deal with whatever and they're totally fine and then they come to the planet. So, anyway, all that's kind of, I think, the root of most of the other 
ideas that McKinnon will talk about from the stoned ape hypothesis to the panspermia to the time wave to the communication with other beings to that shamanism is some sort of primal interface between homo sapiens and the wisdom of these other of the mushroom culture that there really is some other thing that it all comes out of this first trip when they you know in both senses when they trip one trip sub one down to south america moved their physical bodies down there and then when they trip sub two took their minds to crazy places by eating a bunch of dung mushrooms And this, the primary idea being visualized language. Oh, and then, of course, his idea of that the world is language, which is one of my favorites. But anyway, okay, so I talked a bunch. You talk. Well, I, I'm unfamiliar with this, so I can only give my, again, like I said at the beginning, like my takes and my impressions. I have no arguments to formulate or anything official uh, that I have thought through. Thought some of it was kind of funny, and I feel like maybe I just need to address that real quick. It it makes me think of you know. First off, he's very bright, right? He's just a bright individual, and he's clearly an explorer, an adventurer, you know. And so he has no boss, but he doesn't, you know, lord over others either. You know, he is, you know, my son's playing Zelda. He's Link. You know, he's the run around in the big world of Hylia or whatever. Or anyway, <laughs> I fucked that one up, but whatever. Uh, so it just sounds like it was a very formative time in his life with respect to a very intense experience, likely one he may not have ever really had on that level before, and just the youthful exuberance that he possessed at the time. And it also strikes me, and I could be, I don't, I, I may, I, if I'm misrepresenting this, let me know. But it strikes me as, well, that's a big leap. You know, basically like, the first time you trip balls on some kind of psilocybin mushrooms with your bright mind, you immediately, as a 22 or whatever year old, like you're like, gotta be aliens. <laughs> like, boom. It sounds like the pop culture dismissal of, you know, the, the drug culture and the kind of thinking that goes into it. And, when you start talking, when he includes something like panspermia, that piques my interest a little more. Um, and it means that he's continuing to think about it, but then it's like, well, are you just sort of like molding this turd into a diamond or what's, what's happening here? Because I am guessing though, as he aged and as he thought more and thought more and thought more, I mean, it seems to me like stoned ape hypothesis, which I also have takes on, is far more sophisticated than this thing. This thing sounds like, you know, you know, some of the first songs a band writes, you know, 
they get on later as they practice and get better at playing and writing songs. They find them mature and they get to a point where they're like, oh yeah, that's really great, you know, or, you know, that, that definitely sounds much more with it. You appreciate the early stuff, but, you know, it's kind of raw and it's not quite all put together. There's definitely areas to improve and later on down the line, you know, sure they, they did improve or whatever. I don't know. I, how, where am I with respect to what you're thinking about the um, Logos theory stuff that he was first dabbling in? I'm at the disadvantage, disclaimer audience, of not having personally experienced the taking of mushrooms or hallucination episodes, etc., so I have no first-person experience to report on this. But as, an, as a current ignoramus, I'm mostly agreeing with Ryan McKenna over Terrence McKenna here and saying oh. it seems like quite a leap. I'm not a big fan of testimony as a source of evidence. And though it's interesting... And it's fine as a inspiration mechanism, etc. Hypothesis generator to have experiences and come back and tell me and translate them into English again. That's all interesting and fun. I'm very I'm happy to hear about it. I think it's better than many orderings of English words. But I'm not really buying the program. I mean, that's not sufficient to me. No matter how great the source is, for the source to simply report to me, I can't imagine how that could have come out of my own brain. I must be communicating with some sort of other. Well, I don't know, Terrence. Look at your brain. You're... For the very fact that you are smart and well-read and interesting is somewhat an argument against the claim that you're talking to another. Because you're really interesting and have a lot of stuff in your brain to come up with all... I don't know. Yeah, but, I, you know, I don't know about the whole thing about uh, you got to take drugs in order to understand them. <clears throat> um, I, I've never experienced, like, natural selection... I think I can still understand it. You know, like, what, why, why is it that some things are out of bounds? I worry that that's in the consciousness territory again, you know, where it's like, well, you know, the redness of red and, you know, it, it can't be, it's ineffable, it's, it can't be spoken, it can't, you know, and it's, a, it's right. you can't go in there and grab an ashtray. Well, then I don't know what to do, you know, like... I just, I am open to hearing what you have to say. Cause yeah, again, you're likable, you're smart. And I'm, I don't know. I'm just not bad news bears. <laughs> you know? So just, yeah, fine. Let's do this, you know, but do you want me to take this very seriously? I mean, I, I don't know, but anyway. Yeah. As much as I like Terrence McKenna for his skeptical epistemology, if you listen back to the other Dawdlers episodes, those of you who haven't already, 
this will make sense coming from me. I like his epistemology, but I don't at all agree with him about his philosophy of mind. Terence McKenna is both a consciousness realist and a very hefty Mysterian. He doesn't have a theory of what consciousness is, and he often makes comments about how, well, this is a domain where science fails us, and we have no science of consciousness, but obviously there is consciousness. So he's kind of a paradigm Mm. case of a Mysterian, which is a position in the philosophy of mind that I give no respect to at all. So that's probably the area where I have the biggest divergence and disagreements with Terence. Okie dokie. What other, what, what's the next big idea then that he, you know, that we would want to talk about tonight? You know, cause you were mentioning that this well, is sort yeah, of the, all right. upon which all the rest seem to kind of yeah. spin. Let's try to talk about the time wave. I'm not going to be able to do it justice, and you probably won't save me my bacon here. But it's what he, what Terence McKenna sees as his number one contribution to humanity is this concept of time wave and the software that he built on the mathematical model about it that he called Time Wave Zero. So we'll try to talk about it. It was that which is presented in 1975's Invisible Landscape, co-authored by the McKenna brothers, that he then referenced subsequently thereafter everywhere. You know, I don't... I've only skimmed it because there's too much math and figures in it, and I don't like that. I don't know how to do that stuff. (laughs) Let's talk about three sub-concepts that you probably will have something to say about and that other people might know something about. McKenna is saying with the time wave, he's kind of reconceptualizing what time is and making it space-like in various ways, but it's three concepts that are in there are resonance, fractals, fractals, and holograms. So McKenna is very interested in the phenomenon of resonance as in acoustics where like you pluck a guitar string and it makes a certain noise and then you gently touch the thing at the 12th fret and some of the sounds drop out but you still hear remaining a sort of higher tone but it's a different octave of the same frequency. Can you do resonance quick? scientist man you know i mean just i would say i have to now think back on my like physics labs usually when i was thinking about resonance was uh had a lot to do with um the way that waves the additive properties of waves as far as i can tell uh if i can remember this correctly and that uh resonance had a lot to do with sort of i guess you could say like the superposition if I'm if I'm right about that, so yeah, like let me think. Resonance would be uh, to an to an extent. It's just sort of you know, I guess yeah. I I, I want to say it's something along the lines of uh, the you know the vibrations are are moving together and the sort of the additive effect of it is is quite uh, profound. That sounds pretty good. 
you know, I, I, I <laughs> that sounds pretty good. He says, but, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's an extending kind of quality to sound. So it's like you hit something and it's like, bung, you know, like there's just added, um, uh, like, I guess reflection is part of it. That's another part. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Next. <laughs> right. And then we've got the notion of the I fractals. Knock that one out of the park. Yeah. I, I mean, that sounded McKenna-esque enough. I don't know. Because these are all just going to be what he's attributing as kind of properties of time that have been unappreciated before the time wave theory stuff. So the notion of a fractal just being a sort of uh, another sort of mirroring thing, right? An algorithmic creation where a subpart of a thing can be described as the very same constructor function as makes one on the next level up and the next level up, and we've seen the sort of snowflake-looking posters on the wall of our algebra teacher's room and whatnot. Yeah, I think they they like to talk about scale invariance with respect to something like a fractal. And so, um, you know, whatever the program is that creates some kind of geometrical shape or plot or whatever... Um, if you were to go down in, you know, uh, you know, if you were to, you know, say you've got so many iterations across, if you were to take some uh, fraction of those iterations, you would get more or less the same picture again. And if you just kept going further down and further down in terms of the number of iterations, sort of the atomos kind of, you know, uh, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, uh, you just keep getting that same damn picture uh and so one of the fun things sometimes if you ever go and look at any of these kind of gifs or whatever um out there or gif gif i don't remember but usually it's like a coastline and it starts zooming in on and it's a, it's just a trick but it's it's trying to exhibit the idea of a fractal but as you zoom in on a coastline it just all of a sudden before you know it it's the coastline you started out with and you're like oh shit you know like it's it just keeps it's the same thing over and over, you know, uh, but you can still create these big pictures uh, because you're, you know, you're at different levels of the program or whatever. So as it kind of cuts down uh, through, I guess you could say just the, the uh, interval size or whatever. Anyway, becomes a little bit more finer. And there's many more at a smaller scale, but it's more or less the same thing. Yeah, wherever you click your microscope, your degree of magnification, you see, quote-unquote, the same pattern or shape. Yeah. When you think you're turning the corner and you're going to see something different, you don't. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. Anyway. So, okay, so he's resonance. He's all about fractals. And then the third one was hologram, hologrammatics. And is that not something like the concept of every part or piece of some whole contains the information needed to reconstruct the entire thing. Would that be a fair way to say what a hologram is? Yeah, I, I think so. I, it's, but it's definitely, um, you know, the best way to kind of 
talk about it is to take something that's two dimensional in inform it's the an information that's like a, on a plane, and somehow that information can be projected or be produced in a three dimensional way, even though the information for the most part is just on this like say a plane or whatever. There's somebody out there, some physicist who thinks that the universe is actually a hologram. Yeah. Or whatever, and it's just a you know a plane that we all exist upon. But it seems like it's got this added thing, but that's because it has some properties that allow it to take that information and kind of project it someplace, you know, else, whatever. It's all probably in the math, anyway. So those are three properties that McKenna assigns to what he calls time. So then, after that, it gets worse because we bring in. Another of his influencers, Alfred North Whitehead, and this is a place that makes me a little bit worry about McKenna because Whitehead is someone I do know something about, and McKenna's version of Whitehead is unimpressive to me. I think that he's like I get I get the impression that he read it once or something and picked up on a couple of phrases but didn't much appreciate it. But anyway, so the Concepts that he, the major concepts he takes from Whitehead are the concept of novelty and concrescence, uh, meaning the becoming concrete of things. And a phrase that McKenna really, that he reiterates like a Tourette's patient is the Whiteheadian sentence that certain events go through the formality of actually occurring. And I don't get the impression that McKenna fully or properly appreciates the term of art that all of those words have in the whitehead, like what occurrence means and what formality means and actuality, whatever. Mm. But he, we've got this... Oh, hold on, wait, wait, oh. real quick. Is, is whitehead notoriously difficult to read? Yes. Or something as Very well? Very much so. Okay. okay, go on. In this book, anyway, this is Whitehead's book, Process and Reality, in certain other places, Whitehead was very straightforward and analytic, scientistic, regular. You know, we did the Principia with Bertrand Russell and all of that, and did a lot of math and clear things. But then you've got his metaphysical picture in Process and Reality, and that one is notoriously opaque. <laughs> McKenna really likes this concept of novelty. There's Me too. Me too. I yep. mean, we all, just I'm, in general. Novelty. I'm with him on that. That's yeah. You know that there's new things in the universe. The way McKenna tells the picture, like he's a sometimes he's a Big Bang hater. Some other times he talks about the Big Bang. He calls the Big Bang the limit case of credulity. If you're willing to buy that, then you'd be willing to buy anything because. What these physicists are asking you to believe is that in a single moment, for no reason whatsoever, out of an infinitely dense singularity, the entire universe sprang forth from nothing for no reason. And why would that not be the limit case of anything that's difficult to believe, but they want you to buy it? McKenna's version is a reverse of that. He has an eschatological metaphysics that ends in an attractor. And that time is pulled toward the end, the object at the end of time. That's what the definition of the eschaton, object at the end of time. So there's that, which is the 
ultimate concrescence of novelty and the most complex thing possible rather than the simplest thing possible being the singularity at the physicist Big Bang. So instead of banging and going forward, we've got the object at the end of time pulling everything toward it. So what we experience as our arrow of time entropy increasing universe is an illusionary mistake of the paradigms that we are invested in right now. But if we could buy the McKenna version. Instead, time would be this resonant fractal hologram that's moving toward the attractor rather than away from the bang. And what the time wave is, is this mathematical representation of the ingression of novelty into the universe as it moves toward the attractor of the eschaton. <laughs> right? What the fuck? <laughs> it might be complete nonsense, but if nothing else, it's sophisticated nonsense. <laughs> so it's a, hey, he, it's not nothing. And this comes, it's not nothing. It comes from <laughs> the mushroom originally, I guess, or at least was inspired by it. But when he then he then it gets into the math and he loses me. But there's apparently this formula that constructs a two-dimensional graphical sort of like stock market graph that goes up and down and up and down, and you get this shape. Say you know if you just basically plot it out on some stupid Cartesian thing, maybe it goes like zero zero, uh, one three. What I don't know. What well, I'm not going to do it. Whatever. But you just imagine a stock market graph that has a, a few rises and falls and is about 10 X's long in duration. That then is going to be the fractal shape that replays again and again and again in diminishing scale the next time it only goes 5, 2.5, whatever, until you reach whatever McKenna's version of the Planck time is where the where this shape this fractal the time wave of ingression of novelty to the universe happens so fast that it you know folds in on itself or it breaks in some way and that's what supposedly now we can talk about it in a different way than he talked about it cuz he died too soon that's what 2012 was oh so McKenna is one of the big reasons why 2012 became a famous date. And if people know nothing else about McKenna, they might know that 2012 was supposed to be a big deal for a while. It came yeah. and went and we didn't notice anything. But even that doesn't fall so far. He was careful enough to phrase it in a way such that maybe a major event happened in 2012 and we don't appreciate it in 2019. Oh. But that was... The eschatological moment, December twenty second, da da da, magic date, twenty twelve. Magic date was supposed to be the end of history. <laughs> I didn't notice history end on that date, but according to McKenna, that was supposed to be the end of history. Not necessarily like the world explodes or whatever, because history itself is a term of art that has many complexities. Uh, yeah, all this just got said, and I'm like, I didn't accomplish anything. 
It's complicated stuff. Just, Go read Invisible Landscape. I don't know what he did. I've like, see, here's my biggest issue, is that I if there's math, I want to know about it, and then if I if there is math and I want to know about it, then I gotta find it. Yeah. And I've never found the equation, like that he came up with. Like what? And every time I do see something that I'm like, oh, is that something? It like it's fuzzy. <laughs> oh Jesus. Oh, All right, well, I'm is. trying to cite the source for you on that. I think it's 1975, D. McKenna and T. McKenna, The Invisible Landscape. I have that book, but I might have a copy that decided not to include uh, the math. But I have the general mathematical considerations for the mathematics of time wave zero. Okay. That was the uh, the software version, right, where he was supposed to be working out. Yes. A human manipulable, playwithable version of the of the math of the time wave theory. Yeah, and of course, I'd really have to sit down and look at this. Unfortunately, I wish I'd found this beforehand, because then I might be able to understand it better. Because that's one of the things about math that's great, in my opinion, is if it's done. It you know, speaking of concrescence, it allows you to you know, solidify your ideas because you kind of can't fudge with the math, really. And so you kind of have to have, if X is going to be something, then it's going to be something, you know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of thing. And so um, because of the few, you know, there's only, you know, everything's represented usually by a single symbol and all that kind of stuff. It oversimplifies things, but at the same time allows you to kind of manipulate them into these little separate components. And, uh... What I see at the moment is just a lot of summation, <clears throat> which might be part of his whole resonance stuff. I'm not sure. Um, but I'm also uncertain as to how you get those graphs, and so I'd have to figure out that stuff. Sadly. 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 What? You know, another episode is due every fucking week. What do people expect? Tell me about it. Anyway, so that's his big idea, and that's kind of the general outlines of it, that he wanted to view time as this, as a dimension, but a, a dimension interpreted in a new way, constituted by the resonant fractal hologramic ingression of novelty into the universe that was being pulled toward the attractor at the end of history. And that he was apparently told this or inspired to think this by an alien intelligence inside a mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> Haunting those margins. <laughs> Is that marginal enough for you? <laughs> Tell me about it. So, Holy I don't know, do you know enough about to talk about the 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 stoned ape thing. You want to go off on that for a minute? I'll try. But I don't know all that. There are these very specific details. And I know they've been, you know, questioned and stuff. But I, I may not get the wording right exactly. So I'll have to do my version. And then you can fill in, just like chirp and be like, well, he means that, people. You know. So my understanding about the stoned ape hypothesis... And I guess this somehow relates to the first trip in La Crera or whatever. Uh, is that La Crera or La Cara? Or... 
I don't know how La to Carrera. pronounce it. C H O R R E R A, I think. Correra. Correra. I don't Carrera. know. That seems fine. Probably, yeah, Correra. Whatever. Um, the idea being that here you have a bunch of, I don't know, fucking Australopithecines or something. Uh, uh, ancestors of ours who are more ape than we are today in terms of, you know, they've got fur and they probably, when they mature, their, their jaws kind of jut out, their rostrums, um, jut out from their face and they probably make use of all their molars in a way that we don't maybe today as much. And, um, they're smaller, uh, but they can kind of walk upright. So anyway, he, the way he tells the story, he jumps through a lot of time, and I'm just like, yeah, okay. So, you know, it's it sounds nice when you condense it, you know, but, you know, the actual amount of time that takes place is, you know, hopefully those trends continue. So the world opens up. It was a jungle. There were monkeys in the trees. Uh, and then suddenly the climate changes, and it becomes more arid, and grasses develop even more than they ever were before. And they developed to be able to take advantage of the landscape that the, you know, that is just a little too dry for most trees. So trees aren't able to produce these big dense forests anymore. And as the story usually goes, the monkeys climbed out of the trees and started walking around in the open. Um, And so you have this sort of transition. Well, at the same time, other organisms are, also evolving and adapting to live out in a very open environment and you develop you know in you know the path you know maybe it depends on where you are in the world but let's you know africa we've got probably i don't know millions of years ago let's just say for our audience it's probably if i can remember correctly uh you know 10 million seems to be a big big time when this stuff starts to begin uh, you know, 7 million is, you know, 10 to 7 million. Um, part of that has something to do with the uplift of the Himalayan plateau because of the Indian subcontinent ramming into the Asian continent, producing these really high mountains. It redistributes, uh, you know, um, the sort of temperature gradient and density gradient within the atmosphere with respect to the poles and the jet stream and whatnot. Um, and this tends to have a, a big effect as well. You start to develop the southern El Nino or the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which has an impact, a uh, periodic impact on climate as well. Um, and so, you know, you, you essentially are increasing dryness, but you're also increasing to an extent, um, you know, the sort of the strength of seasons and stuff like that. So you start to build into the ecosystems, you know, on a much more frequent basis, fire and things like that. So you have these open, maintained open environments and primates are learning to evolve in them just like the horses and the other kinds of undulates like bovids, like cows and stuff. Anyway, these big, large organisms poop a lot and... Poop is a great resource for plants. Not if you're the plant getting shat on, that tends to kill <laughs> plants, but in general, 
you know, the rains and the poop, it all gets mixed up and the insects like it and the fungi like it. And so one of the things that Terrence talks about is as he experienced in La Correra, this, you know, mushrooms are growing on poop and a lot of these mushrooms in particular, the psilocybin mushrooms have these mind altering properties and so his thought process was, well, what if you're, you know, a primate, a curious primate on the open plains where all these big animals are pooping all over the place, and there are there's a source of nutrition just growing on these patties, and you know you're you're curious, you're trying to figure out what's going on in your world. You pick the mushrooms and you eat them. Well, maybe the dosage. And these mushrooms isn't like the dosage that Terrence's brother and friends experienced at La Carrera, but maybe just enough of that dosage is starting to have an effect on the, you know, cognitive capacities and, you know, the systems, uh, uh, the, the capacities of these cognitive systems for these primates living out in the open. Let me add a tiny piece right there. Um, Do it. Because one thing that McKenna talks about, about the dosage, is that in very low doses, these particular mushrooms have been proven to increase visual acuity. So he's saying, oh, yeah, if you even one, take yeah. a little bit, then you'll be better at, for example, hunting. You'll be better at mm-hmm. fine foraging. What, you, your vision will be a little bit better. If you step up a little more, then the excitation, the arousal of the system makes you feel a little bit sexy. And if you have a, this higher dose, then you do more fucking. And that's also reproductively helpful. And then if you step up a little bit more, then you start to get the psychoactive effects. So that he was trying to develop some sort of ramp that even in experimental doses and very like oh what is this we'll just grab one and munch it even a little bit would be enough to be evolutionary advantageous and if you do a little more that's also and then you know eventually it gets to be consciousness altering or consciousness creating anyway that's it cool key and important part of his idea some of the evidence that he states in supporting this overall idea that essentially psilocybin mushrooms had an influence on the cognitive trajectory of our lineage and the subsequent success that we have we have had in part reproductively the success we've had in part um the additional successes that come from say something like visual enhanced visual acuity like with hunting or something like that uh wherein maybe you're getting more meat more protein these are things that are uh, you know uh, you know are suggestive of increasing say uh, the the growth of brains in humans over time because of the energy requirements that brains possess would need something to be able to support it. And so maybe these things all kind of tumble together. And that's mostly as I understand the stone Dave theory. If there's more to fill in, please do. And then we can talk more about it. Yeah. I think 
<clears throat> that little thing was the major fill-in aspect I had. And then just a sort of table-setting comment was, what it's designed to do is explain what we call the great leap forward, right? How do we yeah, explain right. this movement from chimps to homo sapiens in what appears to be an evolutionarily short period of time? And he's saying perhaps what stimulated the cognitive slash mimetic success of the Homo sapien lineage was their exposure to psychedelic mushrooms that taught them or they had these experiences that stimulated their brains in certain ways. Is that right? Yeah, it facilitated. It would facilitate behaviors, perhaps. And the behaviors then, if they... Well, I mean, yes. Let's just say, let's just say yes for right now, and if we need more detail, I can try and go into it about the evolution stuff. Because that's sort of a big taboo, like I would say. This is why he's a margin haunter, because... As far as I can tell, even to this day, few evolutionary biologists, if you were to count them all up and take, you know, figure out what the proportion of evolutionary biologists that are sympathetic with even the general dynamic that he's talking about, uh, it wouldn't be a huge proportion, I don't think. Most of them would say... Uh, what you know, hmm. like uh, yeah. What you do know, you they, do? You have a an opinion on this? Because as an outsider, or to me, or as this just mere philosopher, I see a lot of surface plausibility in the suggestion. I don't know much about the details, but if someone just comes forward and says, "I would like to throw my hat in the ring to explain this biological." anomaly I think it's because they had hallucinogenic mushroom exposure it seems plausible to me on the surface what do you have an opinion I wouldn't say that I, I mean I have an opinion but I don't think it matters as much as what I think I'm going to try and tap into which is sort of the world of evolutionary biology today and there's a sort of I it, there's a sort of uh uh, wall or lines that are drawn to an extent, and some people tend to decide to be on one side or the other. Just I think silly, personally, but a lot of it has to do with waiting for a f certain number of funerals to happen. I'm guessing, but uh, yeah, footnotes and funerals. Um, I think so. You've got the I, I I'm gonna. I don't want to do. I want. I just want to be free in my association of talking about this stuff. I don't want to try and get bogged down in, in super duper details, or I'll inevitably get on a tangent and get lost and be like, "Where was I?" Don't do it. Um, don't do it. <laughs> uh, if you're listening, mom, catch it, Martha, catch it. Anyway, um, there are those who think genes did it. The genes are the leaders. And there are those who think that genes are the followers. And so Terrence McKenna's idea, to me, sounds like a 
I mean, I don't know how far he even went into it when it came down to like the molecular level per se. I mean, the molecular level of the hallucinogenic or whatever that was in the psilocybin mushrooms, yes, but like the intracellular molecular level, I don't know. Uh, but it sounds to me like he's saying something had a prevalent influence on our ancestors. And those ancestors, um, which were affected by this thing in their world, their surroundings that they were screwing around with, um, had an effect on them ultimately in their evolution. If you are to be someone who's learned evolutionary biology, you're likely not to abandon genes and just say, ah, whatever, let's just, you know, everything's kind of fluxy or whatever. And we just sort of behave and we just do it on a consistent basis or anything. No, there's like a strong genetic component that uh, reiterates the inherited behaviors and morphologies and physiologies and life history traits every generation. And in order to make those change, you've got to either mutate or something occur which kind of moves the relative abundance of the genes in one way or another, you know? So you have maybe something that influences the standing variation that is within the organ, you know, a population of organisms or something like that. And so I don't know if he ever said that eating psilocybin mushrooms mutated some genes that then the genes had an effect on the behavior in the way that they were expressed through the human phenotype, you know, or, you know, the phenotypic variation in humans, which then led to other things, which then had more of a feedback mutational, whatever. The problem with mutations is that the beneficial ones, they come very rarely as far as we can tell. And they are random with respect to, you know, how, where, and why they would, you could explain them on a small scale level, but to like find a way to talk about them at a really like ecosystem level, it might be difficult. Um, but we, people do talk about how the world around you can influence your development and that your development can then have a, have a role to play with your genetic component. And so that's part of the way that, you know, um, it was kind of like somewhat like say shuffling a deck or whatever, how you end up getting some, genes you know moving into a higher frequency than others in a particular population um and in addition to that genes do all these marvelously crazy fucked up complex things and so there's in addition to that there's genes may be a location but the the actual makeup of the you know deoxyribonucleic acid you know base pairs would be you know um you know, it would be, you know, just a little different. And so you'd have what's called an allele, which is just a variant of what you find at this location or something like that. But they can have complex interactions with each other. And so it's a very like big thing. And I'm just not sure exactly. I guess I would peg him as somebody who was saying, yeah, yeah, the quote unquote environment is influencing our ancestors. And that is having a causal effect on the distribution of how our genes get moved around. Uh, over time, going, getting passed on one generation after the next. Not every evolutionary biologist 
agrees with that assessment as far as I can tell. They may say it has an effect for maybe a generation or two, but it ultimately, like in terms of like epigenetics, but it doesn't have the lasting impact that just pure mutation and, you know, frequency dependent selection or anything like that would have. And so that's why I say, I think people, a lot of people would be kind of skeptical of this idea from potentially an evolutionary biology perspective. Not everybody, I don't think. But, you know, they might be accepting it for some reasons, but, you know, uh, de- you know, rejecting it for others. But it wouldn't be necessarily on the grounds of, you know, uh, well, damn it, the genes are the leaders here, and so I don't believe anything you have to say or whatever. That's kind of where I'm sort of loosely coming from when I think about this idea. And when I say I'm not so sure how the community would actually accept it or think about it. I don't think they would accept it, the vast majority of them, if a large proportion of them are just undergraduates learning from textbooks. Oh, yeah, this hasn't made it into the textbooks yet, I hope. <laughs> then that'd be too <laughs> But centralist. you know what I'm saying. Like, textbooks are very central institutional <clears throat> items. The way I interpret yeah. it... But that's not my complaint. <laughs> I don't think about that... It. McKenna would be claiming that the mushrooms are changing the DNA directly or having genetic effects. It would be more, closer to the behavioral. And I, but that it might yeah. be something like the exposure to the mushrooms activates li- what otherwise would have remained latent behavioral possibilities in certain genotypes. Does that make sense? I, I guess. Latent possibilities in certain genotypes. What do you mean by latent? That without exposure to the mushrooms, these... So you have genotype G, or whatever. Here it is, and then this is the phenotype it has and the behaviors that that phenotype undertakes throughout its lifespan. That there are behaviors that that phenotype would not undertake but for exposure to the mushrooms so that the genotype is the same and it makes this body and there's a certain set of possible things that that body might or might not do latent would mean the genotype remains the same but a but body number one that doesn't take mushrooms has behavior set number one and it whatever its life trajectory is what it is Genotype, I mean, phenotype number two, that by hypothesis has the same genotype, but is exposed to mushrooms, has a different behavior set. Behavior set number two that is has been activated somehow. It's not, its genes are the same, but there are behavioral possibilities that go unexplored without tripping first. Is, I don't know if this is helping or making it worse. That's what I'm trying to mean by latent. Like, it's there. That genotype can facilitate behavior set number two. But the only thing that makes behavior set two happen is getting high on mushrooms. I'm just trying to think of, like, how to talk about this. For one thing, I can see how it would have an impact on... Uh, the phenotype, let's just say behavior, 
And in res- with respect to, say, cell-to-cell interactions in the brain, um, the problem is, is that it's, it's very ephemeral. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and are children exposed to the mushrooms? And if they are, then what are the behaviors that they have? You know, because there's this idea, for instance, uh, you know, called phenotypic accommodation, wherein, like, here's a gross example. Um, there's some kind of, let's say, congenital defect in a four-legged organism or an organism that typically uses all fours. It develops in that particular way, likely guided by the genes um, in terms of its development. And, um, you know, there's a defect because, I don't know, there's some poison in the environment that it was born into or whatever, which targets areas that would develop uh, the front limbs into, you know, sturdy, you know, appendages to be able to just use as a, you know, the, you know, the four legs or whatever to be able to use in that kind of locomotory sense. But instead what it does is it totally, it totally um, knocks out those, the ability. And so while maybe the arms are somewhat useful, they're not strong enough. The development has not been good enough that they can really stand on them with the back legs as well. So it'd be like you and me. And so we try and crawl around it would be kind of more uncomfortable for us, even as babies, than to just stand. So what ends up happening is you end up getting all of these changes in the body as a sort of, you know, um, cascade, if you will. You know, the knee bone's connected to the leg bone kind of thing. And you go all the way through the body because you can't hold yourself up in the front as well. And so then all of a sudden the the hips and the back and the legs will start to change in accordance to the fact that you just can't really hold yourself up that way. So it's kind of like it's accommodating this lack, if you will. Now that, of course, is not what he's talking about. He's kind of talking about an addition, if you will. But um, what I'm trying to think of, okay, you have this thing in the environment, you ingest it, and then it has an immediate impact on your brain, even if that has to do with it hits the primary sensory areas uh, of the visual cortex or whatever, which increases somehow the acuity, visual acuity processing, uh, whether or not that is indeed empirically sound or supported or not, I don't know, but say it does, then you're looking at something with a better, you know, vision. Um, Does that then start to detract maybe from some other part of the body or whatever. But I'm trying to say is that if it impacts the behavior in some particular way, with the first example or with the example I gave about the front arms appendages not being as useful for a four-legged creature, say, um, that changes for life, you know? And say, even if that organism reproduces, it likely is just going to produce a whole bunch of four-legged offspring. Um, because potentially what happens is the environmental impact comes and hits the somatic cells, not the gametic cells. The gametic cells are the ones that you pass on. The gametic cells are housed in the testes or what have you. The eggs and the sperm are housed, and they are not as exposed to the world in the same way as, say, some of our somatic cells are. Because I think there's a whole complement of uh, immuno you know, immune system 
cells that are trying to protect. Anyway, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on in my head when I'm hearing this idea. Of course, I get to wear 21st century glasses on a 20th century idea from a guy who admittedly took drugs in the 60s and went to Berkeley and you know what I mean like so it's just a it's one of those things that I just don't know how sounds plausible but it needs a little bit more oomph and support you know to really uh, get it into the community um but again like how does it get passed on how do you get the inheritance structure to start occurring and how does that feed back into it? Some people would say that's epigenetics, but there's a lot of people out there that are like, epigenetics, schmapogenetics. So, you know what I mean? Like, as far as evolution and the con- and real consequential changes in evolution. And they're all, you know, there's a lot of people there out there that are crossing their arms and saying, I'm still waiting for epigenetics to, you know, for there to be some kind of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, but I haven't seen it. You know, it's it's not been produced at this point, and I'm thinking that what he's talking about would require something along those lines. <laughs> Silence. I was like, oh, wait, that's it? All right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could go on and on. No, I and noticed. Start opening, I could, like, open <laughs> books and shit and just be like, well, let me get this more correctly done, you know, or whatever. But, but right. You're, I, what I take to be one of your ultimate points is fine and fair. And I have no defense of it because I don't know the details. That at one point, I think you said you agreed that there's some sort of plausibility in the sense that you're like, okay, that's an interesting idea. Let's check it out and see if it works. And maybe the prob- one of the problems is we haven't yet done that because of the marginality or the fringiness or the taboo aspects of it that it has not been analyzed with the traditional tools of academia to the sense to the extent that it might be worth exploring because that's a oh we don't like get it we don't like drugs we don't like mushrooms in this i don't know no i think that in some ways though i mean it's also technology we I mean, people have just started to put to use. I was reading an article today on um, an explanation of. Uh, speaking of which, being out in the Serengeti or the you know African savannas, you know why are there so many um, large mammalian herbivores? You know why is it so diverse? You know they're just chopping on grass. No, but really it looks like. Um, you know, the results of that study seem to suggest that it's just literally the diversity of plants that has allowed for the diversity of all these undulates or what what have you. Um, and we really haven't been able to get to the technology until, you know, we've really been able to develop these, you know, various kinds of genetic techniques that can compare the, the genetic complement of the poop and of these large undulates and the genetic complement of all the various kinds of plants that are in the savannas. And so then they can play the match game, you know, and just be like, oh, okay, well, this was zebra poop and they ate 
and we find this DNA of these plants in their poop. And, you know, here's, you know, all the various plants that we haven't even really identified potentially and doing the matches that way. And of course it's big data and all that kind of stuff, but it's like a recent paper, you know, and this is a, a niche partitioning theory is what it's called. And so in some ways it's like, yeah, we may be a long way down the road from even having fun and being like, Hey, you want to take that Terrence McKenna idea and we can do it now. Let's just test it. You know, let's figure, you know, wouldn't that be fun? Um, you know, so that's the other thing that's always going to be to an extent at you know, we're, we'll be at the mercy of the technology. One thing we'll always be is at the mercy of technology. Jesus, the gems coming out of my mouth, Harlan, that you say in a different light that make them sound like gems. The pure, amazing, obvious gems. Marge and Haunters are too awesome. <laughs> like we've hardly scratched the surface of all the potential topics we could talk about with Terrence McKenna and we've surpassed the two hour mark and no new ideas are allowed that's right they aren't one of the things that I really like about him that hasn't come up yet is he has all these talks about how culture is not your friend I love that one. Oh yes yeah you see I uh, like all the, the whole yeah. that's where he kind of gets into memetics and he's just like well yeah there's all these constructions and they get they have different environments of selection that are not necessarily in favor of you as an individual human being, but then it infects you with all of its memes and ideas. And right. So I like all that stuff. And then another one of the major reasons why I'm interested in McKenna at all is his theme of that everything is language, because that's another thing that I think and have been working on. I remember that one. Um. Yeah, and there's just you know we already mentioned a bunch of other ones. There's so much good stuff here. I don't know. These margin dwellers are way more interesting than the fucking institutionalists. Yeah, they're they're definitely they're. Um, this isn't a free will episode. Uh, they're freer to play, you know. But isn't that part of the quote that I gave from uh, Colin Firth, who was an actor of all things, that he, th- you know, he talked, I don't I got to like fucking find it or whatever, but he says something to the effect of there's just more freedom at the margins. He's the one who we took the haunting, I took the haunting the margin thing from, you know, that, you know, he likes to, he likes to haunt the margins with characters because there's more freedom there. He doesn't always get to do it. Sometimes he has to play the centrist romantic or whatever. But in general, when you get to play a bad guy or somebody who's just on the fringe or whatever, you get to kind of screw around a little bit more. And I think that's in the spirit of these margin haunters that we have and intend to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was a funny guy cuz I <laughs> there's a one video. I'm guessing he's in Hawaii cuz it was very lush. But he just kind of 
walks through the woods, just comes out of the woods into this little spot. You're still in the woods. But then he's just like, yeah, and he just starts talking about whatever, time wave zero thing. It was just hilarious. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, no, no person you know, gunning for tenure is going to pull that one, yeah. you know, we just, Hey, how about I walk through this bramble and I'll come out and then just bam, right into the ideas. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, if any of you out there are, didn't know previously about Terrence McKenna, I would, I'm putting a stamp of, uh, Stamp approval. Stamping them. What the fuck? What? It's not mushrooms, but there are other consciousness-altering chemicals that are going. <laughs> <laughs> he is endorsed by this dawdler. If nothing else, he's very interesting. I don't buy all of it, but he's. I'm convinced that he's a real smart dude, and he had a lot of interesting shit to say. And you should go listen to his stuff. Be nice to my uncle Terrence. I'm yeah, no, I'm not. He's in the to. clan. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we're all related. Um I have no idea about the McKenna name, to be honest with you. Like I is it the Johnson of Ireland? <laughs> anyway. Uh, whatever. Probably O'Brien is the Johnson of We're like the Anderson. Reached for 